Good afternoon. This is the Parley from the Hindu. I'm joined today by Uma Mahadevan, Principal Secretary, Panchayati Raj, Government of Karnataka, and Anita Rampal, Professor and former Dean, Faculty of Education, Delhi University, both of whom have a deep interest in education, pedagogy, and new initiatives. So the topic today uh, we are looking at is the public education system. So the public education system consisting of government and aided schools, as we all know, is a primary option for millions of students. These institutions have become even more important as the COVID-19 pandemic takes a toll on the economy, making fee-charging schools unaffordable to many and forcing thousands to move to government schools. The public system is once again in the spotlight as the Patna High Court recently asked for data on how many IAS and IPS officers have enrolled their wards in government schools. So what are the barriers that prevent government and aided schools from becoming the first choice, even among the wider sections of the middle classes? So I'd like to start by looking at government schools. The UDISE Plus database, which uh, collects the data for uh, education in the country, uh, schools uh, for 2019 and 20 says that there are about 10 lakh government schools, 84,000 aided, and 3.37 lakh private schools, and over 53,000 others run by different organizations. And about 51% students are in government institutions, nearly 10% in aided schools, and 35% in private schools. So we can see the uh, you know uh, the choice of the majority of students here very clearly, which is government and aided together. Yet, there seems to be a bias against government schools. What are the factors underlying such a prejudice? So this is a question I put to you first. Right. Anita, would you like to go first? Okay. I don't think there is a bias as such that I would say, but I think what happens is there are two things. One, that, you know, uh, People feel that there are not enough teachers or the school may not be functioning as regularly. I mean, those are kind of feelings that people might have. They get carried away by the notions of a branded um, private school, even though that may be a low cost and it may not have good teachers. Often that happens. Those teachers are not qualified, but they may have more teachers. So, you know, these are the kind of images that go. And also, I think there is also this fact about how they brand themselves. They say English medium or something like that. Then, you know, parents feel that that is good, whereas that not, that's not really good. Children of any class, any background, don't really lo- learn better in a second language. They learn much better in the first language. But these are issues that we can come to later. On the other hand, if it's a well-resourced school, like a Kendriya Vidyalaya, These are schools which are performing very well, even though the pedagogy is not so exciting. We would not say that they're really doing so well in terms of how they how the teaching and learning happens, but they perform very well and they're really much better resource than any ordinary government school. So and there there's a great demand that people really want. People use all kinds of contacts to get their children into Kendrivadales. So government schools are not just one kind. In Delhi, there are about seven, eight kinds of differently resourced government schools completely stratified 
And now what's happening is that the ordinary government school is getting, it's a vicious circle. They're getting the poorest children. So that again becomes a bias in a way against that, that here there are the poorest children who are coming. Uh, Ms. Mahadev? Yes. So um, uh, picking up where Anita left off, uh, I think it's very important to remember that government schools are not uh, uh, monolithically uh, of one kind. They are stratified. They are, um, uh, there are different kinds of government schools. There are uh, Kendra Vidyalyas, which are very, very well resourced, which have uh, very good infrastructure, a good um, uh, uh, teacher management system. Um, there are Jawahar Navodhya Vidyalyas, which... Uh, um, literally are islands of excellence and are very, very uh, competitively, um, uh, you know, looked at for admissions. There are residential schools run by different state governments, such as uh, the uh, Karnataka state government has Muraji Desai residential schools and so on, which are, again, uh, very well resourced, a good infrastructure, um, uh, uh, spacious classrooms, furniture and so on, other schools, model schools, again, so, uh, but uh, we also have municipal schools and we have uh, the typical government schools run by uh, different zilla panchayats, which, uh, which, which uh, often tend to get the poorest students. And uh, we should also look at the um, issues of, you know, basic safety, well-being, hygiene factors, in these schools. And uh, I think uh, there is uh, some amount of need to for government to start uh, uh, looking in detail and analyzing the uh, resourcing of these schools and why they cannot be as well resourced. Because there is, there is no reason why we cannot have toilets, good functioning toilets in all our government schools. There is no reason why we cannot have proper compound walls so that children's um, basic hygiene needs, basic safety, well-being, these are things that we really need to um, address. And to that extent, I think uh, uh, there is some amount of work that can be done and should be done in improving the image of government schools so that the basic facilities that are required for children, uh, for any parents to feel comfortable sending their children um, can be addressed. Thereafter, of course, we come to issues of pedagogy, of uh, teacher development, continuing professional development for teachers, and also the level of community participation, the parents' committees, the involvement of families with the school, school events, other, other um, uh, issues, which we can discuss in the course of this conversation. So I would like to turn now to this uh, 10 years of the right to education law which I would imagine should have produced a quantum shift uh, because uh, you had a law, you have a law and then you have the resources, I mean, fast growing country. So uh, have the structural issues been addressed? And if not, uh, you know, why? You know, I think it's an ongoing process. Uh, the fact is that uh, structural issues uh, are vast. We are a very large country. We uh, uh, have different um, kinds of education systems in different states, and we have uh, uh, different kind of issues, contextual issues based on um, some areas where there is a, 
uh, higher population of children, uh, 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 tribal population or different kinds of local issues that also need to be addressed. But over the years, I think right to education has uh, uh, done a tremendous amount to, um, to, in fact, fill our classrooms and to make education accessible uh, to children across the country who would otherwise have been at risk of uh, slipping out or, uh, as more often happens, being pushed out by the system, by the education system, and pushed into uh, things like child labor or child marriage uh, and so on. So I think uh, 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 a very nuanced and extensive um, look uh, uh, is required. The RTE, uh, entire RTE effort deserves uh, uh, a very detailed and in-depth look. We need to look long and hard at what we have been able to achieve and what still remains uh, to be achieved. Uh, uh, but the fact that there is a lot that remains should not take away from the fact that considerable, considerable amount of work has been done in bringing children into classes, in improving school infrastructure, in improving uh, pupil-teacher ratios uh, in uh, rural areas, especially in areas of greater need. And uh, that's something that really the RTE Act has given us. Professor Rampal? Yeah, uh, I think that, uh, I mean, I agree when Uma says that we must look at what was done, but I also say that in 10 years, we have only 15%, barely 15% of schools which can be called compliant with RTE. That is not acceptable at all. And that is also a reason why children are being pushed out and children are, you know, children might come in. We know that enrollments go up, but if the system is not ready to actually accept children and really look at what the RTE is saying, a very a historical section 29 of the RTE is saying what kind of education every child has a right to. And I think there is no school which has rarely complied with that, even in terms of very well-off and privileged and elite schools. You know, what it's saying in terms of the child's participation, in terms of exploration and discovery and activities which are child-centered and developing the potential of every child, not calling them slow learners, not testing them in a centralized way, the way now it's being done and the amendments that have come into RTE, because now the whole shift is on don't talk of inputs, talk of learning outcomes, which is a very, very damaging discourse. It's a discourse of denial, denial to the disadvantage, because it says that the put the uh, onus on the child, say that the child does not know this, the child cannot read this, and don't look at the system, whereas the RTE was amazingly historic when it said, and it actually gave a note to the uh, government and to the legal system that we are not going to be taking competitive exams. We are not going to be detaining children because if a child fails, it is not the child, it is the system fails. And we have abandoned that commitment and that understanding. So that is another reason why children are being called uh, weak learners in Delhi government schools, which are fated for you know, trying to improve the infrastructure, the worst thing that is happening is it's violating children's rights and it's segregating children on the basis of ability, so-called ability. This cannot be done. Uh, you know, I mean, you put a child in another section and say you're a non-reader, say you're a weak learner. How can that motivate any child? This is not what the RTE says. 
So I'm what I'm so, saying so, is so, that the way the system moves, yeah. So would you say, Professor, that the victims of uh, this particular phenomenon are predominantly in the government uh, government schools? Yes, and poor children, disadvantaged children who don't have tuition, who don't have parents at home, who don't have books at home. You know, and now in COVID, we have seen that digital divide crushingly actually telling us that in so many districts that we are now looking at, there are almost 60-70% children who had no question, no nothing. The system didn't even go to them to try and see what they needed. Okay. I'd like to add to what yeah. Anita said that um, it's uh, absolutely true that we should be conscious uh, of not using uh, the language of deficit. I totally agree that what right to education, uh, the legislation gave us was the way to approach the whole child, the child not as, a, you know, not as a bucket to be filled, but as um, a person who is growing and who is bringing to the class rich and valuable experiences too, and the ability to learn. So uh, this language of learning outcomes um, uh, should be should be cautiously viewed because we should not start using this uh, language of deficits and loss. Uh, uh, RT also gave us the um, tool of formative assessments. You know, the 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 uh, it is not the child who is unable to learn, but uh, assessments need to be diagnostic and need to help us to find ways to help children to learn better. Totally agree that ability streaming is is completely uh, undesirable and uh, 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 should be avoided. Children's learning should be seen as a process, as a journey, uh, and the child should be seen as a, a person who brings experiences uh, and who is on the way to fulfill their potential. And especially the poor child who needs um, support to uh, you know, to complete their learning journey at whatever pace they choose to, at whatever pace uh, they are able to uh, learn the different, uh, uh, you know, to 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 traverse this journey. So, looking at uh, this dichotomy of government versus private, you know, and when I say government, predominantly, uh, you know, we are talking about uh, state government-run schools because Kendriya Vidyalaya are in a different league altogether. So. Uh, take, for instance, uh, the medium of education. So some of the prejudice, uh, you know, that some people have uh, seems to be uh, because they have a preference for English. So uh, is, is, I mean, is, is that a reasonable uh, kind of uh, prejudice to have in the sense that, you know, people want access to English, therefore they don't want to go to a school which does not offer an English medium education? I think we need to differentiate between English medium and English as a sec second language. And all of us know that, yes, we want children to learn English, but all research tells us that a child learns much better, a second language much better when there is fluency. And the first process of reading and writing happens in the language in which you look at the world, in which you make relationships with people and the world around you. And so the first language is crucial for the reading and writing. And then the second language is a completely different process. But unfortunately, pedagogy and pedagogy of language is the weakest in our country. Absolutely the weakest anywhere in any school. 
the way we teach it is as a subject, not really as a language, whether first or second. And so that is what the problem is, that people think that if they are in a mother tongue medium, then they will not learn English. And then the whole market, uh, you know, of trying to say that you need English is uh, what gets people, uh, you know, I mean, we know that there are many groups. We know that there are many people who, uh, and even very, uh, you know, well-known Dalit groups who have uh, said that, no, we want English medium. I think that's a political question. It's not a pedagogical issue. And they're not looking at it pedagogically. How does a child become much better at English is the question. But uh, we really need to go into that, need a more public debate on those issues. I agree. Language, uh, unfortunately, has become a site for debate and controversy, uh, the language, uh, the medium of education in schools. Uh, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, it's also unfortunate that English is seen as an aspirational uh, thing and as a language to aspire to, uh, which is fine as far as that goes. But uh, for it to become the medium of instruction would be actually to cut away a child from what they already know, concepts that they already know. We know that education begins by, uh, you know, moving. It's a journey from the familiar to the unfamiliar, from the familiar to the new. And therefore, education in the mother tongue in the primary years actually helps us to let a child build on prior knowledge and um, build on concepts they're already familiar with uh, so that it's not an entirely uh, new and unfamiliar context for them to learn in. And therefore, uh, I think uh, uh, language should be uh, separated from these debates about uh, debates which are really uh, not about how children learn at all, but about something else entirely. So, uh, on the question of access, uh, I'd like your comments on whether we have adequate capacity in the secondary and higher secondary levels for uh, government schools to absorb, uh, you know, a number of people, because we find that uh, the the net enrollment actually falls sharply uh, when you go beyond primary into secondary and higher secondary levels. It goes to 50% and 33% according to the database. So uh, could this possibly be increased with uh, better quality public schooling access? Would more people be able to study in terms of the money involved and, you know, what they can aspire to? Well, definitely. I think, uh, especially for girls, I think increasing access to uh, secondary schooling and uh, to higher secondary uh, education is extremely important. And uh, therefore, the 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 fact that uh, there is a drop in net enrollment uh, from primary to secondary, uh, a sharp drop, is something that should be viewed with concern. And we really need to understand what are the obstacles uh, and and get into very granular detail you know about about transportation about location uh, different kinds of uh, obstacles that may be preventing uh, yeah uh, preventing teenagers and especially girls from accessing secondary education i also think that it's important that the government system the public education system becomes a system which is like a common school, which is equally, you know, we have seen, we've done research and we've seen that, for instance, in a Kendre Vidale, which is, yes, heavily resourced, but which has a small percentage of children coming in, even from different socioeconomic backgrounds, it was interesting to see that the notions of equity are much 
you know, are more rooted there because children get a chance to uh, study with children from different socioeconomic backgrounds in one central school, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, wherever it is located. And it was interesting that children had that empathy. They spoke about it. But in in a uh, private school, we find that that's not the case. In fact, we were shocked that 12-year-old children could even tell us that why do these children have to have the same textbooks like us, the same uh, science and maths textbooks like us? You should teach them Golgappa, how to make Golgappa, how to make shoes. You know, I mean, can you believe a 12-year-old child bringing these views from the social background that they come and also untouched, unquestioned by the school in which they are? So we were shocked that a 12-year-old child can say that government shouldn't waste money on the education of these children, these poor children. So that is a major concern for us right now in this currently in the current times when society becomes so divisive and that the school itself creates those kinds of divisive and reproduces those inequities. So what is important is the government should not be talking of centers of excellence, of model schools, because those go against the notion of equity. Those go against the notion of a more a mixed school, which builds in more ideas of living together, of understanding different religions, different castes, of a more inclusive and equitable school. The government is, in fact, encouraging a lot of segregation, even within its own schools. Delhi takes a test for the Rajkia Pratibha Vikas Vidyalaya. Why? Why should you take a test for at class six and only then admit children? You know, so I think we have to also look at that. We can't just look at it as government versus private. When the school becomes more inclusive, when the school becomes better resourced, when the school environment is more mixed so that a child doesn't feel completely abandoned and left between, you know, already the very poor and understandably those who are really disadvantaged, that is the kind of a government school and a public school that we need. So when we look at teachers, uh, you know, in, in all, all kinds of schools, private and public, so a government teacher's job is actually secure, uh, I would imagine, and uh, with attractive uh, salary and perks and retirement benefits compared to uh, many teachers in private schools. But uh, uh, yet, you know, people, uh, I mean, there, there seems to be some hesitation in putting one's word in a government school, which by which I mean state government school. So, but, uh, so, what can we do to raise the morale of uh, these institutions, which, uh, shall we say, the average middle class person uh, uh, would not want their what to go to? I think, uh, the, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's certainly true that government uh, teachers have uh, decent uh, pay perks and retirement benefits, but they that's only the basic minimum that the um, government should be paying uh, as a welfare employer and uh, it's uh, it's also something that we would like to see in uh, uh, in the private uh, in private schools as well however what what we really need to work on is i think uh, the work of a government school teacher can be lonely it can be difficult it's highly creative work teaching is a highly creative uh, uh, profession and I think there's a lot more that we can do and need to do in terms of empowering school leaders, uh, school heads, empowering school communities, um, the entire teaching community, uh, as well as the non-teaching community. I mean, the midday meal uh, cooks in a school 
contribute as much to uh, building a healthy and happy school environment as, uh, say, the chemistry teacher. So, so I think there's a lot that we need to do to make the work of teachers, to value the work of teachers, to let them know that their work is valued and to make their work visible so that parents and families uh, and communities recognize that these these um, are um, uh, that that this work is special and that this work is important and fundamental to building sound, healthy communities. We also need to create uh, uh, better professional networks for teachers because uh, the best teachers continuously learn from each other, from their own experience and from being able to share their experience. And I think uh, all of this would go a long way in building a very highly motivated group, intrinsically motivated group um, of teachers because because uh, nothing can be better as the daughter of a teacher and uh, as someone who has seen the pride that a teacher takes in the accomplishments of their students, nothing can be better for teachers than to see their work reflected in the achievement and the uh, uh, the happiness of their students. Yes, I totally agree. But I also think that since I myself work in teacher professional development, that that is the very, very weak area. Uh, our, even our students who do a four-year BLED course and they go and they start teaching, they feel that. They feel that the kinds of trainings that are being done, wherever they are done, they say they're quite sad, they're quite dismal, and uh, they're not really learning very much from that. You know, someone might just come and give you a lecture and go away. I think our professional development, teacher professional development, even in terms of the first degree, even in terms of the beard across our country or the DLED across our country is very poor. And that needs to be strengthened. And we don't find that kind of investment either in terms of resources or in terms of planning institutes. It's 95% of the teacher education is in private hands right now, all the institutions, and most of it is substandard. It's just a money-making exercise, you know, most of it. And this has been said by Justice Verma, you know, I mean, his commission. So I think teacher education is something we have not taken seriously. And even today, our teacher teachers, half there are vacancies, almost half of them are uh, filled by guest teachers or ad hoc teachers. So we don't take teacher education as seriously as we should uh, for quality education, because quality on the one hand is equity within the system, within the kinds of children, within the kind of pedagogy that we encourage. And for that, we need good teacher education, which is the weakest link in our system. So we have an education sets on taxable income and uh, some of the issues that we uh, discussed earlier about uh, what could bring people more more students into the uh, secondary and uh, you know higher secondary levels uh, with more uh, investment uh, it should be possible like for instance transport and even actually starting new schools so raising the teacher strength giving them better training and so on with uh, you know we have some funding which is in addition to what budgets might uh, you know uh, uh, provide on a year-to-year -year basis. So, how can the promise of wider access to government schools of for all sections of society be realized? I mean, do we have any thoughts on how we can do this? You know, I think I think it's important to uh, focus on uh, on things in detail and at a granular level through a decentralized approach, because um, uh, it, 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 every school 
actually is an environment every school has its own culture every school is a small community and every school deserves to have its infrastructure first um complete its basic infrastructure then we have we should identify make a small micro plan for every school uh make a micro plan uh, a larger plan for schools at the district level and then at the state level so that you're taking care of basic needs you're taking care of drinking water rainwater harvesting um the school gardens nutrition gardens um dining areas uh these are all the basic things that that uh, the the basic inputs that actually need to be ticked before we can even start talking about uh you know uh, looking at uh, Uh, the level of learning the the kind of teaching all of that we need to make these schools healthy in themselves um it, and and certainly the role of local bodies should be more uh, uh should be enhanced uh, beyond what it currently is because local bodies can really take ownership school development committees uh, can be uh, linked and converged with elected local bodies so that uh local bodies can support the needs of schools can can uh advocate for better participation and really improve uh their local community schools so that it really becomes uh attractive for the entire community any thoughts professor rampal uh no i mean i i i agree that uh, you know uh, what uma was saying though i would just say that let's not say learning can come later and this can come first these are all important aspects of trying to make a, a relevant a good school an inviting school a school which really gives you a sense of you know you you feel that you're learning your your confidence goes up and children and teachers both feel equally attached to that school they feel that there's something uh, meaningful that they're doing so uh, in ter- but in terms of funding as i i also said that it's not just a matter of says but uh, it's it's also priority areas i mean right now we have a priority area like a national testing agency which has been proposed here which i don't think we need to get into centralized assessments and uh, you know uh, 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 in terms of something at the national level which is de- deciding what should happen at the local level it should really be more decentralized but where are we finding investments in public institutes for teacher education we've not found it for many many years Uh, so i think that uh, that these are some things which are completely tied unless teachers come with that understanding of what is education all about what is their role in a classroom how have they been uh, trained because then otherwise you have to do a lot of in service trainings which some states are trying but the foundation that is built in terms of a teacher's own understanding is very weak I also wanted to just clarify I totally agree with Anita that uh, uh it's not a sequential thing that I meant I just meant that it's not even fair to talk about uh, uh, the quality of learning uh, uh, in in a school uh, until we uh, fulfill our responsibility in providing drinking water and toilet and uh, safety and uh, uh, safe classrooms and so on That's, yes that's what i meant yes and this is in line with uh, when when the last national curriculum framework was made and the ministry had was uh, talking to ncrt that you know mlls don't make any sense now to have minimum learning levels what do you think in the new framework we should do we had written up about learning indicators you know that i- learning indicators tell you uh, that 
uh, if this is done, so you know, it is the environment. If in that environment you have done learning in a certain way, if that has been congenial, if you've done observations, if you've done activities, if you have a library, so if you have done these things, then we expect that in five years a child would know that. So it's not learning outcomes, but it's learning indicators, which is contingent upon the environment and contingent upon the process of learning, both things. So the other thing is, you know, uh, for government servants and those who are in transferable jobs, you know, there's a lot of uh, paperwork, there are admissions hassles, and uh, even compatibility of, uh, you know, state boards. I don't know how it works now. I mean, I'm a bit out of touch with that. But uh, is that a barrier why people don't generally go to a state government school? Because when they have to move the next time, it becomes practically difficult. And particularly when there's no Kendri Vidyalaya available nearby. So, and finally, it's the only option available is some private school. Well, that is that is certainly something that parents keep in mind because uh, 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 when people are transferred uh, between uh, between states or uh, uh, out of out of the state or to Delhi and so on or to central government rules, uh, then the language, the second language, the board, um, the syllabus, all of these things uh, come into come into uh, uh, the picture and uh, the ability of a child to adjust to a new board with a new way of teaching and a new way of a new um, uh, syllabus, a new a new second language, third language. Uh, these are things that that uh, you know play a role. So certainly, uh, as far as the limited uh, question of uh, the government servants in transferable jobs, that would I think. Uh, play a big role in uh, deciding where to send their children. You know, also, I would like to say that some years back when, uh, you know, a lot of curriculum renewal was happening all over the country in different states, uh, the ministry had asked me to look at, you know, request me to look at what, how Kerala was doing its curriculum renewal because their assessments were very different. They were creatively assessing children, which other states had not done. And I had documented this in uh, some of the poorest districts within Kerala also. But what I found fascinating was I actually documented that there were people who had earlier sent children to uh, private schools and were now shifting them to the government school. You know, I mean, they were not necessarily people who were very high up in the government uh, hierarchy, but they were people from government uh, uh, offices also. And they said, that now they saw that their ch child was learning much better because uh, they were not f forced in English medium. They were learning much better. They were making sense. They were doing activities. So we have seen that. And even in the last one or two years, we see that in Kerala. So it happens. It happens when a system becomes more sensitive, more culturally responsive to, to the way education should happen, more child-centric. And then we see uh, people taking this choice I don't like to call it choice because it's a public good. It's not a market commodity. So I don't like the word choice, but I think people genuinely shift to a school when they see that functioning differently and they see that it, it makes a difference to their child. Absolutely. And I would just like to add that because it has been done and it has been done in several places, I think uh, it's entirely possible to to study the things that have been done and to uh, to make these efforts in uh, in a larger way across across the country. 
and uh, during the pandemic of course we have we have seen reports about uh, thousands of students moving to government schools uh, in many states that's also there yes and, uh, yes yes and i think the government should respond uh, if, because if it's doing business as usual and if school just means you come cramped and sit down and stare at the board sorry that's not what schooling should be for anyone but it's good that if people are even out of a very devastating kind of situation when livelihoods have been lost and they're really forced uh, to you know to cut down their expenses but if they are seeking government schools government schools should step up and make this as a as a as a way of trying to show their commitment in uh, getting good quality education uh, running not again leaving it as these different segregated silos this is for the poorest so you know it can carry on the way it has been doing absolutely like yeah, uh, sorry uh, you know uh, uh, government schools it's time um, as the uh, pandemic uh, you know uh, has pushed children back into government schools it's time for government school to step up and create a welcoming environment for these children for all children uh, so that the the difficulty of the last one and a half years children have also been through a lot and this is a time where government schools can really play a welcoming role uh, and create a nurturing environment for them so i'd like to round off by asking uh, you know uh, what you might think is a somewhat difficult question uh, you know recently the courts have asked civil servants to send their children to government schools and this seems to depend on the condition of primary schooling in the states where uh, these kind of observations have come Uh, the Allahabad High Court said that in 2015, they wanted, they preferred that government servants should send their children to government schools. And uh, now the Patna High Court wants enrollment data on children of IAS and IPS officers and some senior civil servants. Uh, you know where, whether they have put their children, their wards in uh, government schools. So there was even a Niti Aayog-sponsored study which came up with the recommendation, though it was a much smaller thing confined to Punjab. so uh, is this a sort of logical course to pursue uh, in the sense will it does it actually add up to anything i would i would say that it's unfortunate if we have to uh, force change uh, and improvement in government schools only through these tokenistic measures i would say that uh, as anita pointed out where kendra vidyalayas are well resourced and available and uh, 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 doing well we've seen government schools they are also government schools they are thriving and uh, government servants ais officers ips officers send their children um, uh, in such places uh, are very happy to send their children to um, uh, to uh, kendriya vidyalayas we should also remember that kendriya vidyalayas are uh, convenient for people in transferable jobs what is important however is that there are many many models of creating very good strong k12 schools uh, which are well resourced which can be made attractive both inside and outside uh in in terms of their safety and infrastructure and pleasing appearance and and uh good good uh, uh hygiene parameters but also in the quality of the teaching in the in the quality of the environment in the mix of um, students so that there's a large diverse uh happy mix of students it's possible to create these models it's possible to create models where uh government schools are seeing an increase where people families are uh, shifting over enrolling their children um uh, 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 moving from private schools to government schools it's possible and we should learn from these practices and look at how we can resource our schools better uh make them welcoming environments 
for all children across the board without having to resort to tokenistic uh, measures yeah i would just say that uh, you know uh, i think that if courts take cognizance of this at least that's a good step even if it's symbolic even if it's tokenistic you know i mean they're taking cognizance and they're saying that we need uh, schools which are public schools and schools which have mixed children of mixed backgrounds you know and that they need a commitment from the government so i'm saying that it's important that at least the signal the message is going that there is some cognition of this uh and uh i agree that you know it's not just just try, you you obviously can't take punitive measures and say why didn't you put your child but taking cognition and trying to say why can't we have when all other countries who've managed to provide education to every child of equitable quality was through a public system we seem to have abandoned it even now i mean even in this new policy so that is something that we should really take up very seriously and i think the government people working in government should acknowledge that so i think we'll have to leave it there at that we have uh, run out of time now so i am deeply thankful to both of you for sparing the time at such short notice and uh, you know uh, answering all our questions so thank you very much we look forward to interacting with you at some point in the future thank you so much thanks so much thank you thank you it was a pleasure